Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the fifth week of our series, Women of Redemption. This message comes from Matthew chapter 1 and 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us, and without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. Well, we've been in a study of, the, of a Christmas story, but from a different angle, and we're going to continue that studying from uh, looking at Matthew and then going to uh, first and or second Samuel, looking at an unusual part of the Christmas story, the story of David and Bathsheba. You don't necessarily think of that, but, uh, but we're going to explain why in a few minutes if you're visiting with us. But let me open with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you so much for the privilege that we have to come together this morning and Father, to be able to worship, to be able to take some time in the midst of the busyness and craziness and Father, even the messages of commercialism that surrounds our culture. And Father, to reflect upon you, to celebrate the true meaning of what Christmas is all about. I thank you for each person that's here. And Father, I pray now that you would speak through your word. Father, in spite of me, Father, I pray that you'd help us to hear what your word says. What through the example of, um, of even of David and Bathsheba and their story, and, and it tied to the story of the birth of Jesus. Father, how it tells us about what Christmas is all about. I pray your blessing in Jesus' name, amen. You know, I know when we think of Christmas, we think of the traditional Christmas story. You know, we think of the story of the, of the manger and, and baby Jesus and the angels and the wise men. It's the simple Christmas story that, you know, we hear about even in Charlie Brown Christmas. At that moment when Charlie Brown is frustrated and, you know, you know what is Christmas all about? And Linus steps up and takes center stage and begins to tell the story from Luke chapter two and, and ending up and saying, you know, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. That's the basic thing. And so maybe you've come into our worship service and you kind of expecting to hear that story we know so well. Uh, but throughout this month as a church, we've been looking at a different part of the Christmas story, a part that we maybe don't study that often. And, uh, but yet it's right here in the, in the Bible. You see, in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, it tells us some of the story of Christmas. It tells us about the angel coming to Joseph, and it tells us about the wise men. But before Matthew gets to any of that, he says, well, let me introduce the story of Christmas. Let me introduce Jesus' birth with a genealogy. And, and we think, okay, wait a second, why a genealogy? I mean, that sounds like a strange way to do it. I mean, and even when we're reading Matthew, if you've read it, you know, you see the genealogy and we want to skip right over it because what practical truth is there in a genealogy? Well, here's the thing that you've got to realize. In our time, in our culture, when you introduce someone of any significance, what we do is we start by telling of their accomplishments, of their, in a sense, resume, you know, what they've done. But throughout history, oftentimes when you introduce someone of significance, they wouldn't start by the person's resume, they would start by listing the genealogy, the achievement of the ancestors. And that was almost like the resume, that was a way of saying, this is who you are, this is, this is their, their, their line, and, and then on top of that, here's what they've built. Now, when we think of resumes in our time, we kind of understand one of the rules of resume is that, you know, you try to clean it up. If you have something you're a little ashamed of, you know, you take it out. If you, if you went to one college and flunked out and then went to another college, you just leave the first one out. You put the second one in. Now, that's what they would do generally even with the genealogy. You know, you would make sure that you'd look, make it look as good as it could. Be, as it could. So, so even when we think about this in our resume, uh, you know, I found, you know, just I thought, let's look up and, you know, some examples of the worst resumes and, 
and um, and and I found one that came up first of all. You know, this is this is an actual resume. Um, um, you know that you know we. Well, I'm sorry. It's, we talk about why is it the genealogy illustrates the meaning and purpose of his message, and and so here's this here's this one resume, my little resume. You know, using my, and this is a real resume, and uh, this guy's sitting there saying, okay, this is you know uh, you know pony stats, and here's his GPA and things like that. And this guy's out there saying, I bet one of the rules I think you look at that is don't ask your three-year-old for the opinion about what to do on a resume. Um, I mean, this guy would say, you got to give him some credit for creativity, for courage. Um, I'm not sure I can give him credit for anything else. I mean, I may, maybe it did get his resume well distributed, even if it was on a bunch of lists of worst resumes. So a lot of people have seen it. Um, but I think probably a worse resume was this one. This is from a real resume picture. Uh, and it looks kind of good here throughout, but here's what I want you to see. On previous work experience, marijuana dealer and nefarious, nefarious dude. Uh, that's on his resume, all right? That's part of his previous work experience. And, and then he lists, here's why it was good. Intuitive understanding of supply and demand economics. Good with money. Ran my own delivery service. Had a consistent clientele with high customer satisfaction. Um, gained intimate access to several very exclusive county jails. Um, learned a valuable life lesson. I mean, now again, here's where you say, this guy needs to know a resume. You, you don't put, you know, drug dealer as part of your work experience. That's, you know, you clean it up a little bit. And so that was, that's what we do now. And, and likewise, in a genealogy, you would expect people to clean it up or, or to downplay anything negative. And that's what makes what Matthew does in Matthew 1 so unusual. You see, he not only doesn't try to clean it up, but then he puts people in there that wouldn't have belonged. You see, a resume or, or genealogy in that time was patriarchal. It was father's son. It was just with the men. And that's what generally Matthew does, except he also includes several women. And the women that he puts there are people that were all associated with some kind of scandal. They were, they were not people that you would want to be part of the family tree. And, um, and so the fact that they weren't supposed to be there, when their names are there, it was God's way of almost highlighting them, drawing attention to them, say, pay attention to the story, notice me, because it was trying to say, okay, here's something that they're communicating that was part of who Jesus was. And who were they? Well, you know, you have Tamar, this, you know, this, this woman who basically, you know, sexual entrapment of her father-in-law, and, and Rahab, the best-known prostitute in history, and you had Ruth, you know, who was this poor foreigner, from this despised race, and, and, and this was nobody's who's, who's list that you would want to include. And again, why was that? Well, because Jesus' genealogy illustrates something of the meaning and purpose of his life. And so Matthew is about to tell the story of Jesus, to introduce not only the person of Jesus, but the, the message of Jesus, the message of his life and his death. And that message was that God has invited us to approach him not based on our ability, not based on our performance, not based on our resume, but based on our faith in what he has done for us. Now, this is a really difficult passage or idea for people to understand, not only back then, but, but even today, because it's counterintuitive. It's at odds with this moralistic teaching that is common in religion. You see, when he says this, he says, okay, you know, these are the people that, that God looks at. And, and the fact of the matter is that we have this idea in religion that, that, no, we need a spiritual resume. You know, we need something that we need to do to be accepted by God. 
And religion, what is that? It focuses on rules. It's here's the right things you have to do. Here's how you have to perform. Here's, here's the things to stay away from. And if you do enough good things and, do, and you stay away from the bad things, well then, well then God might accept you. And so that's what we're often told to do. And that's what most religions will do. Here's a set of rules and, and here's how to perform. But Jesus' message was very much at odds, not only with the religion of his day, but even with the spirit of religion that is still common in our day. And, and it's because it's not about our performance. And even then when he gets to the resume, he's taking another extension. It's not only what you haven't done, it's the people before you haven't done. It's when you look at the line of Jesus, it was never about performance. The gospel was always about God's grace. That's the spirit of Jesus Christ. That's the spirit of Christianity. And, and that's why the religious leaders hated him. So again, a religious said, okay, what have you done? How do you perform? And what the Bible teaches is that if we're able to stand before God on our own merit, we all fall short. And because we all fall short, left our own merit, we don't deserve God's reward. We deserve, deserve his punishment. For example, it talks about this uh, in, in, uh, in Romans uh, 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of and she, and, and God is, um, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's the idea that's being taught here. So when we get here, okay, then we get into genealogy. And we said, okay, what does it do? And he starts focusing on the stories. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he introduces it and he says, okay, part of the goal is to tell you that it's fulfillment of prophecy. And the prophecy taught that he would be through the lineage of Abraham and, and through the lineage of David, David the king. And so we want, he says, okay, I'm gonna show you that this is through that lineage of David. And then he starts going through the names. Um, so he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of, I'm sorry, I put an extra slide in there. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So there, we, first of all, we get this, this name, and we looked at her story several weeks ago. You know, the kind of a radical story, and, and yet God worked through her. And Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram was the father of Dimadab, and Adibadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, by Rahab the prostitute. And again, that's a story that you would usually want to go away from. And, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and, and again, Ruth was, was a foreigner. She didn't fit the rules. And, and, and so we've got all these names that we're uncomfortable with. And then finally, we get an Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And so suddenly we finally get there. We get, we get to the person that we've been waiting for, the person you know, that, that was the great king. And, and so what do we learn from David's resume here? You know, he was the guy that was central to all the prophecies and, and, um, and enlisting all the previous names. You might have been uncomfortable, but finally we come to this one and this is the guy we want in our genealogy, right? This is the hero. This is the slayer of giants. This is the warrior, the psalmist, the king. This is the greatest king of all. And, and we would expect that at this point in time that Matthew would say, and here's David the king, and here's his accomplishments, and here's how God loved him, and here's all the great things, and that's what we would expect because that would be in the spirit of religion. Because if, if Matthew's trying to prove that Jesus was from the right line and he uses the right kind of people and the people that perform well, well, you know, let's point to David's accomplishments. And not only that, but let's point to the prophecies but that's not what Matthew does. And look, he gives us another line about David and he highlights not his successes, but he highlights his greatest failure. 
the thing that seemingly would have disqualified David from, from anything that should have led to his rejection. He says, and, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon, Solomon by the wife of Uriah. He reminds us of the story of David and Bathsheba. And just in case we miss the point, you know, it puts us in an unusual way. He doesn't call her by name, but it's, but it's by this woman who wasn't his wife. He was the wife of Uriah, the wife of someone else. And he points us not to David's success, but to his greatest sin, his greatest failure. And, and why would Matthew do this? Because that's the point of the gospel. He reminds us, yes, he was this great king. He was the focal point of Israel's history, and, but this king was also a sinner. And in every sense of the word, a moral failure. And, and, and he just mentions, again, not the great parts, but this place where he failed as a, as a spiritual leader, as a friend, as a father, and just even in his own walk with God. Now, many of you might be familiar with the story of David and, and Bathsheba, but let me just even take a moment to, con- moment to sum it up. You, you know, God had blessed David greatly, had established him as over the king of Israel, and the country had never seen such prosperity and such strength. And things are going so well that the armies are out at war and David has stayed back at home to, you know, he sent his general out and he's, he's stayed at home to enjoy the pleasures of his palace. And white night he's out walking on the rooftop of his palace and he sees a beautiful woman, you know, a few buildings away. He's got the tall, tallest building and this woman's bathing at the, at, at the rooftop and, and he sees her and then he stops and he enjoys the view. And then he calls a servant over and he said, who is that woman over there, that beautiful woman over there? And, and the servant responds in a way that tries to warn him off. Look at what he says. He says, and David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? You know, well, that's who this is, but let me not only tell you that, but it's the wife of Uriah. Well, who's Uriah? Uriah was someone David knew very well. It was one of David's closest friends, closest allies, that they had known each other for, for decades. You see, if you go back, you know, decades earlier, early in David's life, when he was running from King Saul, when he was being hunted down way before he was king, Uriah was one of the small group of men who came to help David, who put his own life on the line to help protect him. And then when David becomes king, Uriah becomes one of his leading generals. So much so that again, he has a, a house literally right next to the palace. But David ignores the warning. And knowing that Uriah is out fighting the battle that, that he's not out there with, he says, you know, I'd like to talk to her and call her over, and only they did more than talk. And it was probably not a loving affair. Bathsheba was called over by, you know, the powerful king and basically had to submit to what he was demanding. I mean, it was a, a, a terrible scene. And then a few weeks later, she sends David a message and says, you know, that, that she's pregnant. Now David's got a problem. And in the spirit of brave political leaders throughout all the centuries, he does what all political leaders do and he tries to cover up his sin. You know, he does the cover up. And, and so what he does is he calls Uriah back and, and he wants to get him to sleep with his wife so that it would you know, look like it was maybe you know, his child. And so he calls him back from the, you know, you know, from the, uh, the battlefield, probably to bring a report. And, and he meets with them and he says, okay, well, we're done. You know, go home and spend some time with your wife tonight and, and we'll meet again tomorrow. Only he finds out in the morning that Uriah didn't come home 
he actually slept outside at the door of the palace. And he said, you know, why didn't you go back home? And, and Uriah comes back and he says, how could I enjoy the comforts of my home when my men are on the battlefield? So David meets with him a second day and then he has dinner with them and makes sure and gets him drunk and kind of walks him to the door and says, okay, go home now. And, but even drunk, Uriah still has such you know, cr- uh, credential or uh, credibility and, and, and standards that he still sleeps by the door. So again, now David's got this problem. His cover-up isn't working. His friend Uriah has too much character. And, and at this point, you might be thinking in the story, this is where God should just get rid of David and say, Uriah, he's the one that's better qualified. But David is the king. And what he does then is almost beyond imagination. Because here's this friend. Uriah is one of his long-term friends, closest supporters. And he writes a letter to the main general and he basically says, okay, I want you to attack the enemy and put Uriah in the middle and halfway through the battle, everyone else would draw and leave him by himself. Obvious death sentence. And he seals it and he gives the letter to Uriah to bring to the general, basically sending him with his own death sentence. You, you know, uh, the general basically does that, sends a message back, says, you know, Uriah's been killed and Bathsheba then marries, or, or David marries Bathsheba. And at least for a time, it might seem like he got away with it. But we're told here that God knew. And at the last verse of 1 Samuel chapter, or 2 Samuel 11, we read, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God knew and it displeased God. And so the questions we have is, did David really get away with his sin? It may have looked that way. And, and then what is God going to do with David? Is he going to reject him? Is he gonna give him what he deserves? And that's part of what we're gonna see playing out here in the story of David, which Matthew is trying to help us to see, which is really also teaching us about the story of Jesus. You see, because David didn't get away with the sin. God knew what had happened. And God dealt with him, not by striking him dead, but by confronting his sin. See, if we go to the next chapter, 2 Samuel 12, we see the story about how God sent the prophet Nathan to confront David. It had been a full year since David had, you know, he had, he had this affair and had had Uriah killed. But now, now Nathan shows up, he's got great courage, knowing that David's already killed somebody to cover this up. And he confronts them by telling him this story that gets around his defenses. And what you see is that God graciously confronts him of his sin. And after, after this all happens, you know, David is it's right in his face. And, and he, he responds in confession, he responds in grief before God. And we see that specifically, not only in the story, but in a couple of Psalms that he's written. In Psalm 32, right after this, he talks about his response and how he responded to what God had did. And, and look what he says, Psalm 32. He said, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. And basically he's saying, I realized that I was blessed not when I thought I got away with it, not, not when, you know, was hiding. I was blessed when it was exposed and then I'm forgiven. Why? Because what happened when he was hiding? What was going on? When it looked like he was doing well, look what he says. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength dried up as the heat of the summer. And basically what he's saying is, I didn't get away with it. I didn't enjoy life. I, my, there, was, there was no sweetness in my sin. No, yes, there was a pleasure at the moment of adultery, but God was hounding him through guilt, and in reality, his life was miserable. And I've been a pastor for about 35 years now, and I've seen numerous times people 
in the church, often claiming to have a relationship with God, who chose to, tr- to jump into a life of sin and knowing that it was wrong, but you know, kind of like, you know, this is what I want to do. And I want to tell you, in walking through life with multiple people, you know, I've yet to look at someone who in a moment of honesty would say, well, this is what I've chosen and I'm so happy. My life is so good. I'm so fulfilled. I know what happens is numerous times after God has brought them back, what they share is something very much like David. It's like, yeah, I mean, there was joy in the sin, but man, I felt God's hand was against me. I felt that, you know, the bones were groaning, that life was broken. It wasn't working. You know, I think, we, I think sometimes the way we can handle guilt, I think of a warning light in our car. You know, you ever drive down the road and the warning light comes on and it's like, what do you do? I mean, you have, basically you have a couple options, right? You know, you could pull over and you can open the hood and you can try to figure out what's going on. You can take it, try to see what it's warning you about and deal with it. Or you could take out a little hammer, hit the dashboard and keep hitting it until the light goes out. Um, and that's the way that we sometimes deal with conviction. You know, here we are, God's trying to tell us. That's what David did. It's a, it says, David, when you look at it, it's a man who tried to knock out the, the, the light of God and he, you know, he, he, he knocked out the light so that he's hiding. But unfortunately, when we hammer out the light and then we drive, what happens is same thing would happen with a car. It starts to break down. It's, it doesn't work. And the same thing happened in David's life here. There was incredible damage done and there were consequences. Even though God forgave him, there were incredible consequences through just the decisions that he made. His family fell apart. You know, there was, you know, there was within his family, there was rape and there was murder and his son turned against him. And, and I mean, it was terrible what happened. But yet, in spite of all those consequences, because he turned to God, there was also forgiveness from God. And God restored him not only to right relationship with God, but also to a place where God would even use him so that he not only included David in the line of the Messiah, but even Bathsheba and even the son that was born out of that relationship, Solomon. And the reason that God forgave and restored David was because even after that year of ignoring God, when he heard God's gracious confrontation, David responded and accepted the offer of grace. You see, after the prophet confronted David, the Bible tells us that David went to the tabernacle and he fell down before the altar of God and he confessed his sins. It wasn't just, I'm caught, I'm, you know, I'm sorry for being caught, what do I do? He didn't soft pedal, he just said, I made a mistake. There's no excuse. And before God, he begged for his forgiveness, taking full responsibility. And you see that if we go back to Psalm 32, look at his words. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sins. He's coming and being honest before God, and that's what God calls us to do, is to be honest, not excusing, you know, know, not just saying, you know, I've just failed in building up the resume, and how do I do it? It's like, no, I failed, and my only hope is God. Now, when we look at this, why is David pointing to this? Why are we talking about this on Christmas Eve? It doesn't seem to fit. Well, Matthew's pointing to this in Jesus' genealogy because it does fit. Here you have David the king, the the person that everyone would say, he's the one that, you know, Jesus would be proud of. And what he's saying is that, no, David and all the people in the genealogy failed. And they all came by grace because Jesus' message was that of grace. It points to grace. He's saying even the best person here left out on their own merits does not deserve to be in the family of God. But on the basis of merits, look who's in the family. 
On the basis of, of grace, I'm sorry, on the basis of grace, look who's in the family. Here you have Tamar and you have Ruth and you have Bathsheba and you have you know, Rahab the prostitute. You have all these people sitting at the table together and they're all part of the family of God in relationship with God. They're, they're people that God not only says, they're part of my family, it's in Matthew, Jesus is bragging about. Because this is what Christmas is all about. Jesus Christ came to bring us salvation. The gospel is not about how we somehow earn a good record before God so that he accepts us, how we polish our resume. No, it's that Jesus Christ came to earth and lived the life that we could have, should have lived, but couldn't, and then died the death that we deserved by taking our sins upon himself and the punishment for those sins on the cross so that all who receive him and his gift on the cross, we are saved, we're given a relationship with him based on grace. And what that means is it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter any of those things. God wants you to have a relationship with him. He wants you to be someone that he can be proud of as a member of his family based on grace. Because the point is you need grace no matter how great you think you are. And you are offered grace no matter how bad you've been. That's the story of Christmas. And if we look at David's confession, it's not just that he confessed his sins, he also trusted in God's forgiveness. His confession wasn't, yeah, I'm sorry, but I'll try harder, I'll make it up, I'll, you know, God, how do I perform for you? And no, he throws himself at the mercy of grace. And the question is, why would he do that? How did he forgive? And God doesn't just say, well, forget about it, ignore it, it's not that bad. No, though there's sin that needs to be dealt with. And again, that's why this is the story of Jesus. It's the story of Christmas. How does how does God forgive? The story of Christmas is that again, Jesus Christ came to die on the cross and through his death, we can be forgiven. See, that's why the, this story and the story of David is applied towards the Christmas story and likewise can be our story because the story of who Jesus was and what he came to do. All the men and women that when you look in the genealogy would have been condemned for what they've done, but they're saved and they're part of the family. They're part of the genealogy because of God's grace. So then this may be a perfect story for you. If you're here today and you have a past and maybe your past is this week, you know, it's, maybe it's what you're in right now. And, and if you have that past, sometimes you may look at that and you may think it's an excuse not to seek God, not to see him face to face. And, and you feel like you're here today and you don't belong here because you know, you're just not a church person. And, and that past is almost an excuse to alienate you from God as it was for David. But here's the good news, this is Christmas. And the message of Christmas is God sending his son, not in a world that got itself together, not in a world that had the right spiritual resume. It's about God sending in a world that needed a savior, a savior for sinners, of whom we are all. And the story of Christmas is that we didn't need a moral example. We didn't need help to somehow perform a little better. It didn't, you know, we need a savior. And God looks at that and said, okay, all the sin that was in this genealogy, that didn't thwart the saving power of Jesus Christ. It actually, again, that all points to what Jesus Christ came to do. So that he saved them, but he also included in them the family line of his son. And here's the incredible news. You know, your past and your present will not keep you from, uh, you know, from, from God. That God is, you know, you might look at that and you say, well, that's an excuse for me not coming to God. And, and your past may be a problem with you approaching to God, but your past is not a problem for God connecting to you. Because it's not based on your resume, it's based on your faith and what God has done for you. Now, 
Some of us might even be thinking, but I can't come to God because if I come to God and he admit that, he's gonna catch me and then we're fearful of him and we're fearful he's gonna punish us because he's exposed us. And, and here I wanna let you know a little secret. Um, God already knows. You know, sometimes we have people who are afraid to come because we're afraid what he's gonna say. He already knows and if he wanted to punish you, he could have already done it. And it's not like when you come to him and acknowledge the sin that he's gonna be more angry He's actually drawing you near, and part of it might be through that brokenness, and he's saying, okay, I want to, I not want to punish you. I want to give you forgiveness and grace. I want to heal you. And for some, your struggle may not only be what you have done, but also what has been done to you, how others have sinned against you. Let me go back to Matthew 1, and look at how Matthew introduces this whole story of David. Look what he says. And Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, I think that's that's a really unusual phrasing. All the other cases, he mentions the woman by name. Why doesn't he mention Bathsheba, but the wife of Uriah? I think it's A, to draw our attention, but actually, it's not that he slighted Bathsheba by leaving her name out. I think he was protecting her. I think it's Matthew's way of saying she was not at fault in the scandal. This was not a story of where she sinned, it was a story of where she was sinned against. And when we understand the culture of that time and David's position as a king, what happened between them was not consensual. It was not a great seduction or a great love affair, it was David using his, abusing his power to take what he wanted. Now, I could spend a lot more time on the subject and it's an important subject, but I don't wanna to spend too much time here on Christmas Eve. Other than to say this, God is the redeemer of all. Bathsheba's life represents deep tragedy and shame and trauma. And yet, her son Solomon became king of Israel. And more importantly, she would become part of the line of the Messiah, part of the family of Jesus that, again, God was proud of. Now, I say that understanding that based on statistics, there are many of you here today, both men and women, who can relate to the story of trauma. Sometimes we believe that, you know, Jesus came and he came only to heal certain parts of our story, but he doesn't care about our hidden trauma or because we're so scarred here that he could never use us or never really love us. And, and Christmas is only for the acceptable or the acceptable parts of our life. But the Bible doesn't hide anything. And he invites us to bring it all to Jesus. And God included Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah and the genealogy of Jesus to tell you that his redemption is for every part of your life so that regardless of what you have done or regardless of what has been done to you, the fact is God knows and that God loves. He loves you. He wants you to be part of the family. He wants you to be included in that family table, even as was Bathsheba. See, by God's grace, Jesus invites us to be part of that family. It's not by performance. It's not by a resume. It's not, have you tried hard enough? Have you been good enough? Are you, do you feel like you deserve it? Or You'll never be good enough on your own merit. But again, your failures will never be more than God's grace. And he invites us to come in spite of who we are, in spite of our past, in spite of how much we've run away from him, no matter what we've done, He says, I invite you in based on what your faith and what I have done for you, that Jesus Christ came to die on the cross, to take our sins upon himself 
so that he could make a way for us to have a relationship with God, to be part of his family. As it says in Hebrews 2.11, that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. He's, it's not ashamed, he's actually proud of that relationship. That's the relationship God wants with you. Where it says in John chapter one, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. God wants to give you that right to make you part of the family not by what you've done, but by receiving and believing in his name, by trusting in what he has done. We're children not born of the blood or the will of the flesh, not born by what we've done, not born by our resume, but by the will of God, but by his grace and our faith and trust in what he has done for us. My friends, I wanna invite you, if you've, you know, some of you may be here and, and you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. You know, you're here and you know the story and you know what it's about and, and this seems like a really weird Christmas Eve message, and, but it's part of the Christmas story. And maybe God brought you here because he wants you to hear this story. And maybe you relate to it in one way or another. And it's God's way of telling you, I'm pursuing you. Even when David ran away, God was pursuing him and he's saying, I'm pursuing you and, and I want you to be a part of my family. You might feel like I don't belong, but God is saying, no, I'm pursuing you. Christmas is a story of God coming to us and pursuing relationship with us. And there may be some here today that even this Christmas morning, when we talk about Jesus coming to earth and it's a reality that we accept that Jesus has come for you. And maybe today's the day that you say, no, I want him to come into my life. And I come and like David say, God, I agree with you, I've sinned, I'm sorry. There's no excuse, I ask you to forgive me. I don't have the resume, but I throw myself at your grace and at your mercy and ask you to forgive me through what Jesus Christ has done. If you've never done that, I invite you to do that this morning, to pray that where you're at. Uh, I would love to even talk with you afterwards more about what that is or anybody at the church. But I hope and pray that this would be a Christmas where it's not just a story, but it's real to you. And there are others, well, we've done that in the past, but boy, what a great encouragement that, that the fact of the matter is, you know, even as believers, we don't always measure up. We sometimes fall short. We're just, man, could God use me? Could God... Hey, the story of David and Bathsheba and the whole genealogy is look at the people in the family line and the people that have messed up. And, and if you've messed up, don't continue to run away. Don't worry about whether God's gonna get you. Realize that God is calling you to grace and say, okay, I wanna forgive you. I wanna heal you. I wanna restore you. I want intimate relationship with you. I want you to be part of the family. Come back, come back to me. You know, don't continue to run away and run towards sin because you know it's not working. And he wants to forgive and he wants to heal. And even for those that may be more than victims and the, the scars are not only what we've done, but what we've been done to us. This is a story of redemption, of grace. And I hope and pray that as you hear these stories and as you apply them to your own life, that you realize that this will be a Christmas that when we think about family time and around the table, that you realize part of that table and that family that you're part of is a family of God, an intimate relationship with him. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.